Hello, listeners. Welcome to the show. As we do from time to time in this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, we're going to talk about a newly published book. Two books, actually, that are a celebration of this show's reason for being, namely, The Story. Collectively titled Art in a Democracy, The Selected Plays of Roadside Theater, Volumes 1 and 2, these books represent Roadside's significant but often overlooked contributions to the evolution of American theater. It's a complex story, born of songs like the one we just heard from the Roadside Junebug production of Junebug Jack in 1990. Old songs, new songs, and tall tales arising from the coal fields of eastern Kentucky and spreading to other communities as far afield as the Bronx, New Orleans, the Zuni Pueblo, and America's prison industrial complex. At their heart, These plays and their creation stories provide a vivid portrait of a 50-year history of creative collaboration percolating at the crossroads of art, community, and the ongoing American struggle to craft an authentic living democracy. Our guests for this show are the book's editor, Ben Fink, and Arnaldo Lopez, the managing director of Pregones Puerto Rican Traveling Theater, one of the collaborating theater companies profiled in the book. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, South of the Mountain. Before we start our conversation, a little history seems appropriate. Roadside Theater is one of a number of programs and projects operating under the auspices of a media, arts, and cultural organization located at the heart of central Appalachia and Whitesburg, Kentucky, called Apple Shop. Now, Apple Shop was founded in 1969 as a project of the U.S. government's War on Poverty. Over its five decades of lively existence, it's grown to become an important amplifier of the voices of the Appalachian region. Its mission is pretty simple. Namely, to develop effective ways of using media and cultural expression to address the complex issues facing the region. Roadside Theater was born in 1975. Here's how it describes itself. We're a professional ensemble of storytellers and theater makers hailing from the mountains of central Appalachia. We draw inspiration from our area's rich history as well as the histories of cultures and communities we've come to love since starting this journey. Art in a Democracy, the book, shares nine original road company scripts and the stories and historical context of their making written by some of the Roadside Saga's key players. Arnaldo and Ben, welcome to the show. So, Ben... Could you begin by describing the context and format of the two volumes you're here to talk about? Totally. So they really present two different faces of Roadside's work. It's the same pursuit of art in a democracy looked at in two different periods and with two different lenses. And the first is about a people's history of the Appalachian coal fields, primarily Kentucky and Virginia. But if you live in West Virginia, you live in Tennessee, you'll hear a lot of your story there too. And it's five plays that are not in any way linear narratives, right? These are family stories. This is 
investigative journalism. These are tall tales. These are songs, both traditional and original, but taken together in a kind of stark relief, they tell a story of the people living in the coal fields from the first time that the Cherokee and the Scotch-Irish met up until the American war in Vietnam, including histories of people from this area who went there because central Appalachia, along with African-American inner cities, biggest suppliers to the U S military. And it's through looking deeply at that story that you understand the histories of a lot of other places like it, but it's a hyper focus on this particular area and the people that are there and in different ways, the struggles with becoming modern, right? From, from in all, in, including industrialization, including the move from farms to coal camps, the introduction of technology into life, introduction of different cultural norms in that life. You know, to me, one of the striking things about this history is the with, not for nature of the work. These plays are not just interpretive. For the most part, the audience and the players and the writers have the same roots. When the script says we, that's not just play acting, it's cultural democracy. You know, I was just talking with Ron Short, who wrote or co-wrote the majority of the plays in both of these volumes. And he said, you know, when Roadside got started in the 70s, it was a lot simpler than all the theory that's come up since then. He said, you know, I just didn't want to go into the coal mines. And my daddy showed me, his, and that story, story of Ron's dad is South of the Mountain, one of the plays in volume one. He says, my daddy took me into the coal mine. He said, son, you don't want to be here. And I said, you're right, I don't want to be here. So he figured out another way to live. And he figured out a way to live telling stories and singing songs and performing and specifically telling stories and singing songs and performing in ways that reflected back to his neighbors a sense of their own history, their own stories, their own legacy that they didn't have. And they didn't have it because it had gotten taken away from them by the coal companies and the industrialists who'd come in and said, you're dumb. You cannot do anything other than go under that ground and get paid nothing and take out a whole lot of value for me and we'll take care of the rest of it. And went around with some of his buddies to say, actually, we've got this incredible, rich legacy of beauty and a history connected to that beauty of making a life for ourselves on our own terms and with tremendous wisdom embodied in these really simple stories. Now, here's a short excerpt from South of the Mountain, which was written by Ron Short and directed by Ron and Dudley Cock. Originally produced in 1982, the play describes life in Appalachian coal country through tall tales and songs about crops and food and weather and dancing and drinking. Stories and tunes that explore the power of kinship, the fragility of life, particularly for the young, and the potent presence of the church, feeding souls and helping folks make do in the hard life of their community. In this short piece, you'll hear Ebb, 
played by Tommy Bledsoe, Nancy Jeffrey as Ma, and Ron Short as Tad, who begins the scene with a question to the audience. Wasn't it a nice day? Yeah, it was. I, I didn't get to spend much time. In I just wanted to know if y'all had a good time. If I was going to be miserable, I don't want the rest of the world. <laughs> but it, it is the kind of day, I just got to think about that, it's the kind of day where you're just real glad that you ain't the only person in the world. It's the kind of day you need people to share things with you. You feel good that you know there's somebody else out there seeing the same thing that you are, and somehow or other it makes both of you feel bigger. At the same time, you kind of feel them smaller, but... <laughs> I've got nowhere to go with that, so uh, we've come down here to share something else with you, though. It's just a little story. Here we kind of talk about a place called home, and you know where that is. See? We don't have to tell you that. But we'll sing you a song about our home, sorty, sorty. <laughs> and you probably will even know where that is, too, but we'll, we'll sing it anyhow. Sometimes it goes like this. Tell me where do you come from? Tell me where will you go to them mountains around you? Oh, them cities of gold, cities of gold. Cities of gold, cities of gold, oh, so lonely and so cold, you can lose your very soul, living in cities of gold. 
So these are five plays, starting with the Jack Tales, starting with Mountain Tales and Music, where volume one starts and saying, we can make another life for ourselves. We can understand ourselves and our lives and our stories as having value. And that was connected with the union organizing efforts at the time and the community organizing been going on since the organizing against the environmental destruction of the coal industry. Volume one is about how they figured it out in the coal fields rooted in Appalachian culture and in mountain culture. And then volume two is the way that gets applied in work across cultures and across places and on immediate social issues. Touring alongside other companies, black theater companies from grassroots areas, Puerto Rican theater companies, what Arnaldo's here with, and indigenous theater companies, Jewish theater companies, all sorts, and recognizing that they had been doing that same work in their communities, in their parts of the country. And so that's really the story of these volumes. Part two, the intercultural plays. So I know that volume two is a different period historically, but does the format and structure of that volume change in any way? Actually, volume two does the same thing for the second half of Roadside's work. Right, Volume one is called the Appalachian History Plays, 1975 to 1989. And volume two is the intercultural plate, 1990 to 2020. And same thing with an introduction, sharing that history and the history of the world around it, getting into the culture wars and the ways in which public support for not only the arts, but for any kind of community storytelling and meaning making gets slashed and the results of that and the ways in which Roadside started banding together with companies like Bragonis, companies like Junebug, companies like Traveling Jewish Theater, and building national and international coalitions, partially out of survival, out of how do we meet these challenges together in ways that we never could alone. And four plays in that volume, two that we made with Bragonis, two that we made with Junebug, including Promise of a Love Song, which is with both Junebug and Bragonis, and a fourth that is made in collaboration with those that are imprisoned, those that were guarding them, and those families of people in prisons on both sides. As prisons got built in the coal fields as a supposed answer to economic development, thus again setting black folks primarily from urban areas and white folks primarily from rural areas against each other. So all of these four plays in different ways, talking about the way that we work interculturally and we resist the ways in which we are set against each other. And again, with essayists from different perspectives, shedding light on those stories. I just want to reinforce that point because I think at first blush, many people would say, oh, well, Here's two books with scripts representing work done over the last 50 years. And unless you're in the theater, most folks just aren't used to reading scripts. And I just want to say that having just dipped my toe in both of these volumes, that the essays, the writing, the history, the stitching together of the story of these different communities creating theater and finding each other and understanding that the same impulse was resonating across 
all these communities, well, it's extraordinary. So this is more than just a couple of books with scripts. I think the scripts are kind of the icing on the cake. And I think these are stories of discovery. And peeking in on the history is absolutely thrilling. Arnaldo, you were at the center of the creation of one of those cross-community plays shared in Volume 2, The Promise of a Love Song, which was produced in 1999. And that was basically a cross-country collaboration. Whitesburg, Kentucky, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Bronx, New York, Roadside, Junebug Productions, and Pregones Theater. Some might wonder how those dots connected. Could you share a bit of Pregones' story and that particular production? Certainly. I, I think that the stitching and the finding each other, that is part of the sort of common experience and the really willingness to to get together for these companies. I love the anecdote about Ron coming into this work, and I think it really resonates when I think of Rosalba, when I think of Alan and Jorge, some of our colleagues who are in the first generation for Pregones Theater, and the fact that, you know, from a relatively early age, mobilized by political experiences of the 60s and the 70s, they were looking out to generate cultural work in a way that was a, a binding, you know, as a means to bring people together, as a means to affirm in a very public way that, you know, we are a nation of many differences and that the question of identity and the question of, of vocation and place, that, that they're cut through. And luckily, there are many contexts in which we do connect with like-minded folk and we're always, the feeling of being part of a movement is part of what energizes us. So, so that's exciting. <laughs> Promise of a Love Song is is very special work. I am very fond of its title. The title comes from Joan O'Neill, at the time leading Joombug Productions and Pregones Theater in the Bronx, Joombug in New Orleans, and, and Roadside in Kentucky. You know, what are the odds? Can we talk about the things that make all of us folks who are seeking to claim space and identity and place and community? And, you know, do we have enough space to talk about how we relate to things outside of the places where we are at home and comfortable? And and can we do that with a whole lot of food and a whole lot of music? Because that's really what helps us keep going. And and I think that, that that's, the, that's the genesis of it. And I should say that the differences are embedded throughout. And uh, music playing such a big role. And I think opening the doors for each creator community to generate its, its language, bring up its, its stories, its poetry, the things that they cherish, and the pride that came in that exchange. These are all the things that were fundamental to make it something lasting as it was. The second volume of Art in a Democracy includes Arnaldo's essay on the making and impact of Promise of a Love Song. Here's how he describes the play's unique three-in-one, one-is-three love story configuration. The script ended up interweaving three love stories, In Roadside's Charming Billy, an elderly mother cares for a son living with developmental disability, both shaped by the hardships and blessings of rural life in Appalachia. Brigones' Silent Dancing, adapted from a story by Judith Ortiz Kofer, 
juxtaposes a young woman's memories of growing up in Puerto Rico and her father's plight as an immigrant in New York. Junebug's star-crossed lovers tells of two black activists building a family in the bosom of the civil rights movement. Together, the three stories grapple with intersecting and distinctly American embodiments of race, culture, language, geography, and oppression. Each has its own accent, color, and historical context. Each also triggers certain narrative expectations in the audience. To watch the show is to have those expectations constantly readjusted. We wanted to share a taste of Promise of a Love Song, but unfortunately, it's not available. Fortunately, though, Pregones and Roadside collaborated again in 1999 on a piece called the Puerto Rican Appalachian Musical Betsy, which tells the story of a jazz singer named Betsy Garcia Swindell, who confronts the complicated, unacknowledged white Appalachian side of her biracial lineage. In this scene, a small piece of that revealed history is shared in dialogue and duet sung by Elise Santora and Caridad de la Luz playing two parts of Betsy's divided and confusing past. When my boy Eli was born, Eli, he was your great-great-grandfather. Was Eli's father unknown? No. His father was Eli Phipps. He stayed around just long enough for me to bear another boy. Shortly after that boy's birth, he sold me a parcel of land for the sum of eight dollars mm-hmm. nine acres on the waters of Elk Creek yes indeed I tell myself and no one but me will pay the price for how I've lived Of my children I see My whole life Staring back at me Finding common ground within a seasoned theater company for the creation of a new work is hard enough as it is, but in this case, Arnaldo, you have three dynamic creative ensembles, each with its own culture and history and ways of working, and, well, when all is said and done, collaborative creation just doesn't happen without trust. How did you create the foundation of trust and cooperation needed to forge this 
long-lasting partnership. There was a lot of talk about what this project could be even before it crystallized into something concrete. There were many avenues that could have been pursued, and the three companies were already committed to learning about each other, visiting their home, staying there, like having residencies that were substantial, opening it up to live audiences, having conversations. At one point, there was the, the possibility of writing a single, more traditional-looking play, right? Collaborating in that. But the idea of this kaleidoscopic approach where each company would be given their own space and there will be a weaving in and out of those stories, that really crystallized and I think was truer, truer to any other attempt. And when I think of the differences, you know, it was part of the experience, like being there with folks who have a different claim on American history and a real desire to push it forward without omissions. It's very exciting. This, for me, it coincides with the top of my tenure at Pregones, and it was a real privilege to be able to travel to New Orleans and meet all these incredible artists and have the opportunity to sort of gauge it in place. Part three. An Invitation to Populism. So, Ben, from its early beginnings with the cycle of plays that came out of coal country, I know that Roadside was very sensitive to theater's potential to separate the stories from the people and the communities where they were born. I'm thinking that the fact that many of those community members were embedded in the making process probably helped keep the work accountable. But for the work represented in volume two, at any given moment in the process, most of the partners were guests from other places and cultures. And I'm wondering how you work together to both keep that accountability to the home stories and allow for surprising hybrids to emerge. It seems like you had a gigantic learning laboratory for creative give and take for art in a democracy or even art as democracy. Could you talk about this and the relationship between this work and our current struggle in terms of this thing we call democracy? So there is a lot of hopelessness, right? There's a lot of fatalism. There's a lot of people who mean well and care about things that are worth caring about that are saying things like, we are hopelessly divided. There is no future. We can never build a democracy. And the fact is, things weren't any better 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. They were different. But when Roadside was starting, there were strikes in the mountains where union organizers were literally getting murdered. Like this idea that, oh, it's gotten so much worse. is like, no, there has always been these incredible obstacles. And yet what Roadside, working with Pregones, working with Junebug Productions um, in the Deep South and a whole bunch of other companies said is we can recognize that. We can recognize the depth of the problems and we can, as Arnaldo said, start from the stories we share, the food we share, the relationships we share 
it's not either or. Same way, it's not either or do we dig deep into our own community or do we go wide building relationships with other communities? The deeper you go, the wider you can go. Folks at Roadside talk about a bridge, right? The span of a bridge can only be as strong as the posts on either side of that bridge are deep. And so we build deep posts within our communities, within Puerto Ricans in the Bronx, within white folks in Appalachia, within black folks in the deep south. And then from those deep posts, we're able to build that bridge. And we're able to build that bridge in a way that is really specific rooted in our communities so that when, for instance, folks from the prairie in Nebraska come to see Promise of a Love Song that are not from any of these cultures, they immediately see themselves in it just the way people in our communities do. And I mean, this is me, right? I'm a Jew from Connecticut with New York roots, and I see myself in this so clearly. And we know that people see themselves in it so clearly because after the shows, we're doing story circles. We're having people coming up to the stage and sharing stories with the performers that the play itself is a working out of this problem, is a dialogue in the same way that the backstage work is and in the same way that the essays in this anthology are. Like you said, you said a bit ago, people aren't used to reading scripts and I get that. And what I'll say to people is these are not scripts like you are used to reading. These are collections of stories and collections of memories and people looking to make sense of their own experience and how they can make it possible for them and their families to survive and for their lives to mean something in the world. And so the line between the plays and the essays is actually a little bit blurry. All these different voices, some on stage, some off the stage, exploring the same questions variously in dialogue with each other and with any luck in dialogue with the reader. Yeah, and the line between the audience and the actors on script is also blurred in the fact that you have transcribed scripts with audience interjections included. And it mirrors, I mean, physically, right? We keep the lights on during the show so the audience can see each other. There's no curtain that goes down. There, You bridge the orchestra pit, sometimes you even bring the audience up onto the stage. It's exactly that, because that audience intervention is every bit as much of the show as the scripted parts that the actors do. And in fact, if you look at the videos of the shows, you see they don't always line up with the scripts that are in this book. The scripts <laughs> are the best guesses, but these are always built as you go along in dialogue with the other actors and with the audiences. Yeah. So Arnaldo, one of the central creative partners represented in this book, who is no longer with us, is John O'Neill, who was a singular presence over those same 50 years as a pioneer in this kind of community responsive theater. Could you talk about how working with John influenced you? I got to I got to interview John O'Neill a number of times and just spent time watching him, which was formidable, and, and got a few times to get him to think through the work and the many dimensions that the work has. The political dimension and the creative artistic dimension 
dominated, I think, in John's understanding, but only to the degree that they are intended as part of a greater interaction. And I think that that's one of the magical things about this kind of work. The work is has many openings. So it's not a master narrative. It's not it's not a kitchen sink drama. It's not a linear experience in classic theater mode. But on the contrary, it is very layered. Each company is creating characters that are also types to a degree. And each of them presents a complexity to it. And I think that's what makes it so accessible, because in many ways, it's just more genuine than than heroic narratives that dominate. I think the, the play succeeded in making us feel that there was a tremendous sense of what's achievable if we think and live together, you know, beyond the obvious. You know, there's a heroic version of what art is. You have the artist as a singular, often tortured, one-in-a-million person who transcends their great weaknesses to produce a transcendent work. Yeah. And we're all so lucky the artist made it to the finish line because those great works are so few and far between. And I think what these books testify to is another narrative, one of creative abundance. No, we're not hurting for stories out there. We have thousands of years of stories here. And, you know, in addition to the abundance of stories contained in Art in a Democracy, these are really beautiful books, and I have to say, very jargon-free. It's actually something that Arnaldo and I were talking about before, that it's a real intentional effort, these volumes, in the same way that Roadside and Pragonas and other collaborators have always tried to do, which is do work that is really advanced and complex and do it in a way that is accessible. It was a process of sharpening each other that really mirrors the work that we've always done together. And one of those things is really scrubbing it of jargon. You will notice there is not a single footnote in either volume, and that was not a an accident that there's plenty of scholarly work referenced in the bibliography if you want to go deep into the history of these ideas we welcome that the one thing that struck me most immediately was how accessible the two volumes are i was so happy to 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 see is something that is an invitation and an opening i I feel that right now we are at a moment where there is a lot of recognition of the lineage of this work, right? It's not out of the blue. These are This is one example, 50 years. And talk about looking for the strong posts. I think my company was founded as a touring company and they were, they were looking to represent, but they were also looking to, to learn and acknowledge. So finding other communities and other artists that were also looking deeply at their position. How do we not just lift our communities, right? But understand how we are shaping a nation, you know, and, and, and hopefully for the better. There's a great deal. The alignment of this work, like you said earlier, is abundant. And I think that in as much as there are multiple histories of oppression cutting through, there is also a keen sense that, hey, a truly popular theater is one that reflects the riches of the people. 
So there's also a great pride, again, in bringing onto the stage elements of Puerto Rican culture, in our case, that have continuously provided nourishment for people to keep keep moving and often to keep moving against the odds. So, so whether it is the ways in which traditional music find its, its, its way in or the way in which some of our artists innovate on some kind of performance that is dear and folkloric and then find a place for it within the context of our fellow artists from Appalachia and our fellow artists from New Orleans. The, the other thing to lift, which I think this volume is optimally positioned for, you know, the past few years have been tremendously volatile. There is more nuance. There's more language readily available for people to talk about race and class and to do it very directly, right, to explicit conversations to happen. Now, looking at the two volumes together, it's a recognition of all the harvesting, right? This work is there. Here it is. It's accessible. There were folks dealing with these themes before us. <laughs> And, uh, and there's still lessons. And can we huddle and, uh, and take a look, you know, take a read? <laughs> yeah. And Ben, you finished the book with an invitation to populism, which I know you feel is a very misunderstood concept in the current scheme of things. Could you talk a little bit about that as we close our conversation? I think in addition to what Arnaldo is saying about abundance, a parallel theme going right along with it is affirmation. That some years ago, American Theater Magazine interviewed one of the founding members of Roadside and said, what's Roadside's place in the history of American protest theater? And the response was, Roadside is not a theater of protest. It's a theater of affirmation. And that's the difference. The populist tradition, the actual populist tradition coming from the People's Party in the 1890s, were the people that coined the term, to the popular front in the 1930s, which was at the center of it was the United Mine Workers that came out of the, the populists of the 1890s, to the folks in the civil rights movement who really mentored a lot of the founding generation of the companies we're talking about, Roadside and its colleagues. It's a through line about that affirmation, about everyone has value. And it sounds like the silliest, most milk toast, vanilla thing in the world. Who's going to disagree that everybody has value? No, no, no. Everybody has value. The person behind bars has as much value as the person at the head of the corporation. And that's not just a nice idea to say, but we're gonna make it true. And that ends up being a revolutionary thing in many ways. But the way that populism is misunderstood is from the very beginning, from the late 19th century, you have these demagogues or you have these opportunists who've said, yes, I am your voice, power to the people through me. And Donald Trump is only one of so many that that history has gone all the way back because that rhetoric is so powerful and so appealing that actually everybody gets to have worth and that nobody's worth more than anybody else. And so the difference between 
actual populism embodied in these volumes and the fake populism of a demagogue is the fake populism says, I speak for you. And the real populism says, we speak for ourselves. And that's what these volumes are about, is people and communities coming together who are supposed to hate each other, who are supposed to fear each other, who are supposed to have a deep distrust of each other, saying, we all matter, we all have value, and we're going to insist upon that in the world together, speaking for ourselves and with each other. Well, thank you both. And your many colleagues for the inspiring work represented in Art in a Democracy and your hard work producing these volumes. As a person who's gone down that road numerous times, I know that writing a book is hard enough, but creating a book that inspires and makes sense is another thing entirely. Um, this is just one person's opinion, but I, I think you've succeeded mightily here. Now, it's pretty hot off the presses, right? When did it come out? March 14th. For information on how to order books and information about the books, go to artinademocracy.org. All one word, artinademocracy.org. Great. And the publisher is New Village Press, okay? And so there's numerous places you'll be able to find information about this book that will all be in our show notes. And I'm assuming you're going to be doing some public events. Oh, yeah. We got a whole calendar of events planned. Go to artinademocracy.org for the latest. And we'll tell you that the one of the first of those events is going to be in the Bronx at Patagonis Friday night, March 31st. Tickets on sale now. All right. And thank you both for a great conversation. Likewise, Bill. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. If you want to hear more from Mr. Ben Fink and his adventures with Roadside and Apple Shop, check out Change the Story episodes 17 and 18. As you know, Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our incredible soundscape and theme come from the talented musical pen of Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects are from freesound.org. And our inspiration, as always, comes from the inimitable presence of Uk235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. Change, change, change.